0: This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirgilio.
1: This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. It is so great to be back on the air, although the program... Seems to be in shambles. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. shambles is a strong word, but for those of you that follow the program closely, you're probably excited that it is time for the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James Virgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We have so much to discuss. When we set out to create a mailbag episode in May, we figured that it'd be sort of a hoedrum, answer some theoretical questions, some football philosophy, whatever was on your mind Little did we know that the next week or two after we had done our last podcast would lead to one of the more incredible weeks in Florida football's off-season history, and we're certainly going to give that its due time. Before we do that, let's give you your due time. Thank you so much to those of you that support us on Patreon. If you like the show and you like the content, of course, like us on Facebook, head over to Patreon and become a patron. We did have yet a few more new donos, new donations. For those of who new to the show, we call donations donos. Some of you love that, some of you hate that, but we do it because you love it's to hate it, polarizing and fun. Uh, but we have Thomas Upshaw, who's been around for a while, but upgraded his support level. Thank you so much, Thomas. And then first timers Marshall and Kathy Gallup. Welcome. Had a nice conversation with them on Patreon. As always, the king of the jungle, Alexander Leventhal. From day one, this guy yeah. is number one. He's at a level that you could beat him out at, for those of you that are out there. Maybe this fall it will be the time. But thank you so much, Alexander, and the friends of Alexander as well for your support. It's like a whole little crew. Yeah, thank you guys. You guys are the best. That supports that. So we appreciate that. We certainly hope that you will enjoy today's content. Of course, we do this show hoping that you're going to learn more about football, more at the program, and your feedback. Always appreciate it. We have tailored this entire show now over the five years we have done it to what you want us to do so we can give you... What is best for you? And with that, Alan, why don't you walk us through what is now kind of being dubbed as as Hell Week, this week that sort of created what this podcast is mostly going to talk about.
0: Yeah, rough week for the university, for Dan Mullen, for our program. We're going to get into how rough was it and what are the repercussions moving forward. But just a quick recap of everything that went down. Jalen Jones, early enrollee, freshman quarterback, uh, Essentially gets arrested, I don't know how you want to phrase it exactly, for sexual assault. Uh, Ends up transferring from the program, kicked off the team. Essentially, Chris Steele, our highest-rated recruit in line to get some playing time this year, a corner. Transfers, uh, makes some allegations that he uh, requested a roommate switch. We'll get into that in a little bit. Goes to Oregon. Several high-profile decommits. Uh, In the class of 2021, DeMarcus Bowman, the five-star running back out of Lakeland, who everybody had penciled in to the Gators, commits to Clemson. Someone on our coaching staff is arrested for some kind of cyber-stalking. Who knows? Uh, A few other things, uh, among them Brian Edwards getting arrested. Um, I guess an outside this week, Michael P. Ryan gets in some kind of uh, dispute with a a tow truck driver, although I will support anyone in their fight against Gainesville tow truck driver. So good for you, little Michael, all kinds of stuff. So the way we wanted to walk through this was through the questions that you guys asked. So let's start first with Chris Grant. He asked, should Mullen have kicked Jalen Jones off the team first before he was able, able to enter the portal?
1: This is a good question. It feels like having all the information now that he should have. And that in fact, him being Jalen Jones, even playing in the spring game seemed to be potentially misguided. There was news that you knew he did something. I understand that Dan Mullen's take on this and Dan Mullen's take on all of these legal cases is like a lot of other coaches is that they want to wait until they see what happens. Certainly it could be nothing, You could take the tack, Allen, that you should just take action first and then wait until you see what happens later, especially in the case of Jalen Jones, a a freshman, early enrollee, not expected to do much. Why have him play in that game? Those are good questions. As far as kicking him off the team, I don't think so. You didn't have anything definitive yet to go on, right? You have allegations, but certainly those allegations could be changed. They could be dropped. I think if you're a college football fan – like almost everyone on the show is the question that you ask yourself or I ask myself is how many times have you seen these allegations actually not be true? Not very often, of course. So you tend to kind of be cynical and say, let's kick him out. But I think if it were me, and I guess I'll answer this question this way, Mullen chose to play him in the spring game, despite knowing something happened, or at least he was accused of something happening. And then he chose not to kick him off the team. I would have chosen to not have him play the spring game which means I would have had to have leaked news that something happened. I think they were trying to keep it mainly in-house, but I would have done that. Hey, something happened. We don't know what it is yet. We're going to figure it out. But in the meantime, he will be suspended because questionable activities that you are accused of will get you suspended. I think that's a wise move. But I would not have kicked him off because you can't kick a guy off for something that's not proven to be done yet. There's no evidence, as he said, she said. You've got to let that play out. I don't think you want to have the reputation of just kicking your players off every time something kind of weird or bad happens. But... Not a good look for me, Alan, that he played the spring game knowing what we now know.
0: It's tough. You're right. We're working with incomplete information here, and I don't want to kill Mullen either way. My hunch is that he didn't want to take away from the hype of the spring game. He didn't want to distract. He wanted this out there beforehand and thought, we'll just deal with it after. I don't know that it would have dusted up as much had it not been followed by the other things. So maybe it would have, his little gambit would have, you know, proven the correct move there. If that's what he was doing. Also, maybe we can give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was waiting. He just didn't feel like he had enough info even to hold him out. Now, obviously the safe thing to do would be to hold him out. Who knows what he knew at that time. So I'm not going to kill him either way on this. I think you're right. Maybe the prudent thing to do would have been to hold him out. And I a hundred percent agree with you doing something much larger, like kicking someone off the team. I think we're quick to rush to judgment, right? I am a big believer in due process that you know, you're not guilty, like de facto that you're innocent until proven guilty. I think some of the title nine stuff in our university kind of court system and the same even a court system, whatever it is has been under fire for some of these things that it's not necessarily always a fair process. You need to let it play out. Now these are very serious allegations so, if there's even a probable cause that they're true, maybe it's not enough to convict them, but you think it was shady enough, then yeah, let him go. I, you don't want that around your program. But there is a process that I think the university goes through. There are protocols, as Mullen said, as Scott Strickland said. So, I don't think jumping the gun on those serves anybody. It doesn't serve the victims, the accused, the university. So, I think they handled it about as well as they could have, you know, from where I sit, you know, whether he plays in the game or not, I don't know if it's the biggest deal. And so you could criticize him that a little bit, but I, I don't know. Again, I don't know what he knew or who knew what, when. So in absence of that, I want to be careful about overly criticizing him. Let's keep going with this. Uh, Part of the fallout is, is that Chris Steele, like I said, our highest rate recruit top corner from California Decided to leave the program, um, made some claims that he, you know, asked to be moved rooms with Jalen Jones. They're rooming together. And then the coaches, uh, what? Well, who knows what they did with that request. There's some differing information on that. But after the, the, you know, the fallout of the Jalen Jones stuff, Chris Steele leaves the program, moves himself into the transfer portal. To Oregon, and I'm sure is hoping for a a hardship waiver to be able to play immediately. He hasn't been granted that yet. James, let me get to the question from Jonathan Weishadel. hope I said that right. What are some of the immediate consequences of Chris Steele entering the transfer portal and then, I guess, exiting it to Oregon?
1: I think let's look at this two ways, Alan. First, let's look at the immediate consequences to Florida. And then let's talk about something that has been talked about really ever since a certain Georgia quarterback got his transfer for a racial term that was said to him during a football game. The consequences at the macro level with Justin. Fields. So at the micro level, how does this affect Florida? Well, you've got a guy who was your highest rated recruit, your 42nd overall recruit in the country uh, gone, right? He was a guy that most people, including us in this very podcast thought was going to contribute early at a position of corner. Uh, and a guy that, of course, was well respected nationally as being a really, really good player. So you have that. So the immediate loss is you lose a, a depth guy, you lose a contributor right away, and you lose your highest ranked recruit. Generally, not a good look. The macro consequence of this becomes the more interesting storyline, and you have to ask yourself why did Chris Steele enter the transfer portal? That's the real question. Why did he do it? There's multiple storylines we could explore. No one is going to know for sure, but let's explore the main ones that exist. Number one is that he was homesick. He didn't want to be here anyway. He moved from California, came all the way out here. He's an 18 year old kid. His mom is a strong influence in his life. Wasn't really thrilled with how far away he was from her. So you get a little bit of homesickness and then the more sinister side to that becomes. You craft a story to get yourself into the transfer portal because you don't like the decision you've made to be at the University of Florida, and you find a way to be able to play immediately so you don't lose a whole entire year for transferring. That's sort of the dark web to this. The second avenue is you believe that this guy gets paired up with Jalen Jones, who then looks like he's going to wind up being some sort of monstrous roommate to live with. He then makes a request. Uh, of the coaching staff to move me, please. I don't like living with this guy. This is a problem. He's a bad guy, bad obviously. Bad guy, right? Bad influence. And now Chris Steele being your highest rated recruit should probably merit some attention. Um, so therefore, they didn't do it. And now he's going to leave. That to me, Alan, also seems like an excellent story that is being used to bolster his transfer portal. A couple of main reasons why. I think we now know that Chris Steele chose to live with Jalen Jones, that they were friends we also know from a series of tweets that those two were corresponding with each other rather, rather cordially for quite some time. And most importantly, I think from good sources inside the university, we know that Chris Steele did not, in fact, really request a roommate transfer.
0: No official kind of request, nothing that the university could find in terms of a Actual official request.
1: Nothing is there. So you start to say not a lot of evidence to really support what he's saying here. However, the guy leaves for spring break, doesn't come back. That to me says he goes home. Mom's had enough. I want you closer to home. He's kind of homesick. He's a kid. He's complaining. My roommate also did this stuff last week, which was bad. He was there to witness that. That is something different, right? Narratives can change. And now let's find a way to make this happen. Oh, by the way, there's this transfer portal which guys have been having tremendous success getting their waiver, if you will, sitting out an entire year for things that are seemingly really not what that waiver process was created for. And I think that's going to be the bigger story here, Alan, is that if Chris Steele wanted to transfer and he made a bad decision in his mind, should he or should he not have to sit out a year becomes the big question. The NCAA seems to be leaning towards, no, you shouldn't if you have almost any kind of reason at all. And I think that's, to me what this big story really is about. It's those factors. We'll never know all the answers to those questions, but those are the factors on the table.
0: Yeah. It seems like if I had to make a guess, it was maybe somewhere in the middle of those two things. Now, obviously he said that he made a roommate request and, you know, switch roommate request, switch. I don't know. I'm very dubious about that. All of the signs point to the fact that he didn't actually do that. Now, maybe he mentioned to an assistant coach and expected that to run up the chain, but as him being the highest ranked recruit, you know, I don't know. I don't, I'm not like, they're just going to ignore this. They're going to pay attention to this guy. So it does seem like a story that was made up after the fact. Immediately. I, I think, you know, I don't think he was in line to play start this year, hopefully with Henderson and Wilson being the top two guys you got Trey Dean playing. You didn't really need him, but those two starters are probably going to be gone, and you're going to need him next year. And hopefully he was probably going to get some minutes so those guys weren't playing the entire game. So now your corner depth goes into major flux. So there's immediate consequences, not that drastic for this year, but potentially really big for the year after and the year after that. I don't know the whole transfer portal thing. I think there's a lot of good to it and there's a lot of still question marks. I think they're still trying to figure out how does this get used effectively for everybody's benefit? Let me ask you this as a follow-up from Jonathan, are the coaches to, at all to blame for Steele's decision to leave? Like if he did make that that roommate request,
1: I think Mullen caught a lot of heat for this on the message boards, even in the media, as though it was his fault. I think the more the story unfolded, the more I've heard from people I trust within the university that it's probably not his fault. And I think you heard me kind of say that in the previous talk about this narrative from how I see it. I can't know that definitively, but this to me seems like a guy they recruited that went the wrong way. I want to answer this this next question that he asks is, would he have stayed if we acted sooner? No, I don't think so. I think this guy was going to leave. Uh, Dan Mullen did fly out to California and attempted to save him. And that, to me, is a guy that's going to leave, right? You, you're not going to save that guy. It didn't matter if it was happening earlier. I think the momentum of this was going in that direction. What I will entirely place blame for on the coaching staff is the entire California experiment. We've railed on this before in the podcast. It was an absolutely foolish, foolish thing to do to go and try to recruit the state of California. To
0: spend that much time To spend so
1: much time. Investing in those players. Californian players have not had a lot of success in the SEC. It's a different football culture. It tends to be something that people like to throw around. California's soft, the SEC's not. That's more or less been true in the recruiting world, though. It's a different player, it's a different mentality, it's a different lifestyle. To invest all of your resources there is like we're going to go take over the state of California as your primary kind of top 100 recruiting base. Maybe you're doing it because you're feeling like Alabama and LSU and Clemson are right here in your home. Very foolish. I think this was the the final painful extra nail in the coffin because the staff has already abandoned that plan. And it was just another proof that Mullen probably is never going to highly recruit the state of California again. In fact, I would imagine in future classes, you don't see a California kid unless that kid grew up a Gator. Because this was a, a very souring of that whole plan. And it hurt us in recruiting. It affected us. It wasted our time. It wasted our resources. So to me, that's entirely the coaching staff's fault. One guy choosing to leave because he's homesick, you may or may not be able to identify that. But I do not think the roommate switch was at all the trigger for this. I think there were way more factors that went into this. And that's just something they're using. So I don't think it could have been prevented. I think those wheels were in motion already once he got on campus. And it just got cemented when he left.
0: Agreed. And even if he didn't, let's say he just went to Mullen, he didn't find any paperwork, but he asked to switch. How many freshmen, you know, students in general want to switch with their roommate? Cause he's not clean or he's kind of a jerk or, you know, ate your ice cream or whatever. You're, you're sure you're dealing with this kind of stuff all the time. You're like, Hey, you know what? Just wait till summer. We'll switch it out. Maybe even like, you know, saying, hey, why don't you calm down? Now, whether he's a top recruit or not, I think there's this type of stuff going on, I'm sure. So you have to balance that. Even if he did make a request, like, do you honor that or do you ask him to deal with it and have good conflict resolution? Now, as this other stuff comes to light with Jalen Jones, it makes you look bad in hindsight. I don't have a problem with him granting the request or not granting the request because if it's if it's about this guy sexually assaulting people in your room, you don't just switch rooms with the guy, you kick that guy off the team. So I don't know that I want to blame Dan Mullen at all for this. Like you said, I don't even know if, I don't think that the request was real. And even if it was, I don't know if it's actionable for Dan Mullen to be spending his time sorting out who's rooming with who, you know, and who's not doing the dishes. So I'm fine with it. Like you said, I don't think this was about the roommate. I think this was about uh, him feeling like, you know, getting cold feet essentially for coming all the way to Florida.
1: And we're going to talk a little bit later about the culture of recruiting and how much that impacts what kind of guy you take, what kind of character guy you take. So if you're thinking in your head, hey, what are your thoughts on that? We will get to that. For now, we're going to continue with a narrative that we've been putting out there. How do you think Tyler, Tyler Pierce asked Alan, how does the Chris Steele saga affect recruiting into the season, especially since it seemed like we were finally getting on track?
0: The answer is, I don't know the timing of everything with these 2021 guys decommitting with Bowman committing to Clemson all seemed to happen within the same week. I think everyone felt like the sky was falling. Now we're a little bit away from that. We've actually had a couple guys commit for the class of 2020. I don't know if it matters at all. I think these guys that don't know Chris Steele, you know, a California kid going back to Oregon you know, if it was a more high-profile Florida guy, maybe it would have more repercussions. I'm a little bit conservative in this. I'm not quick to push the panic button on this. I don't know that we're going to remember the Chris Steele thing 10 years from now. Maybe if this next class falls apart, we'll look back and say, hey, this is the turning point where some of the wheels came off. The staff has plenty of time. They've been working with these recruits. I, I don't know that the Chris Steele thing is going to affect it. I think especially the way some of the players responded, which we'll get to in a few minutes, leads me to believe that they have the coaches back in this situation. And if the players feel fine with this whole thing, how how it's sorted out, then I think the program will be on good footing moving forward. I don't think it makes or breaks you either way.
1: I don't think there's any correlation between a guy leaving now and a guy in the 2021 class. I think that's merely... Uh, a situation that occurred at the same time. But we've talked about recruiting enough on this show to tell you that each player has a myriad of things they like or don't like or want or don't want. And guys leaving the program now or not leaving the program now almost certainly do not factor in whatsoever to what they're actually thinking about when it comes to their own future. It's almost always something to do with another coach or another coach at another program or whatever the case may be. It almost certainly has nothing to do with this Chris Steele situation. It just happened at that same time, which magnified kind of what's going on. Alan, I like something you always say, and of course I anchor to this because it's my belief in recruiting anyway. You shouldn't care too much about the guys that are committed for 2021. Is it good that we're getting higher rated guys now? Sure, it is. But there's so much time now for these guys to change their minds and unfortunately become the divas that almost all of them will become because these are high school kids that are thrust right into the spotlight. They get way too much attention that are not capable of handling it and tend to have people in their corner that are not wise, that are not good. that cannot give them sound advice and they lose their grounding. So they lose themselves in the process. They become me monsters. It's brutal. It's difficult talk to any division one coach in any sport. And they will tell you recruiting is a nightmare because of how these kids are so coddled. So I feel very confident saying what Chris Steele did does not matter to them. He's not even in their world. Although to fans, it certainly felt bad to have that kind of week. All right, Alan, Tyler Rummery, the first fan of the Gator Nation football podcast. What's up, Tyler? If you watch the Game of Thrones, it's like the Tyler Rummery first of his name, you know. (laughs) King of the first men. Um, At any rate, Tyler asks, does the transfer portal increase the odds that early enrollees leave the program compared to normal enrollees? So in essence, does the benefit of having an early enrollee outweigh the downside of potentially losing him to the portal because he leaves early?
0: Well, the portal certainly throws a monkey wrench into this equation. I, I think everyone is so high on early enrollees and rightfully so you get that guy in the program early, you get him in the strength and conditioning program. He's got a whole summer. He should be ready to come in and contribute right away. If he's got the talent and the physical traits that you're looking for, the transfer portal is tricky. I think overall it's going to be a good thing for college football. But we're gonna to have to sort this out. I read an article that there is way more people in the transfer portal then there are spots available, quote unquote. That sometimes the guys end up in the portal and programs don't want to take them because they're having trouble academically, they're having trouble legally, maybe they're just not a good guy and that's been borne out. You know, there, if you're Chris Steele, you're always going to find a spot at another high Power Five program. A lot of these guys going in the portal, though, are looking around at the Power Five and not finding spots available. They're looking around at a group of five and having trouble landing. Now, again, I think some more player movement is helpful. But this is an issue moving forward. If you get a guy in the fall, he stays a whole semester. You've gotten a, a semester out of him in the fall during the season where you could have used him. Now we've had a whole semester with Chris Steele and he left. He never had the opportunity to actually play. That's obviously bad. But if a guy is going to dip out, maybe you'd rather know sooner than later. This is going to be something that coaches are going to have to evaluate of how many guys they take in early enrollee if more and more guys start hitting the portal halfway through the spring. I don't expect that to be the case because they're not no one's lost a job in the spring. Right. They still have the summer. They still have the hope of fall camp that they might move up the depth chart. So I don't expect this to become an epidemic, but we'll have to wait and see that college football is still definitely figure out how to handle the transfer portal.
1: I think the benefit is absolutely outweighing the downside. The downside is that a guy leaves, but if you get nine early enrollees in every single season, one left, you're still winning. You're still winning. And I think that would be a really high number to have one leave into the transfer portal every single spring. So it's worth it. I think the transfer portal for what it's worth is is not what they wanted it to be. And and I could spend a whole podcast talking about how if you create regulation, it very often does not go the way you want it to go and it creates more work and more problems and more headaches. If you imagine a world where players could come and go at their leisure, but what would happen is the players that came and went at their leisure a lot wouldn't get to play. Because coaches like you and I, Alan, would say, This guy has already gone to two programs, he is a problem. I'm not taking him. And sometimes we forget that. And we say, what if we just lock him in longer? Well, a lot of times the problem people in life identify themselves if you give them a complete free will to make their decisions. And then otherwise people say, I'm not taking you because you're unreliable. Hmm. Right now we don't have that ability. Uh, And that leads into our next question. Colin Crable asks, the coaches can leave at any time. Why can't the players? It's something he says he hears a lot, especially recently. He understands that, but based upon the recruitment activities, a signed letter of intent, a scholarship, food, and housing seems to be that there's an ethical tool, if you will, for them to be able to renege on the promise. They're fresh off the recruitment cycle, have plenty of iron still smoldering. There's this whole issue of, of fickleness. And ultimately, Alan, the question becomes how do you feel about this concept that the coaches can leave? At any time, but the players can't like the players are trapped, if you will, in the program. Is that true or not true? What are your thoughts?
0: I feel kind of both ways about it. On one hand, if you sign with a coach and then he leaves a month later, I feel like the university should should release you from your letter of intent. Or if something crazy happens, like the Ole Miss situation, I thought those guys should have been able to transfer or the Baylor situation, whatever it might be. And of course, some people are going to take advantage of that. But in general, I would rather err on the side of helping these players. I do think there is an imbalance um, because of the regulation of the NCAA. The coaches get paid a crazy amount. Um, They're allowed to leave any time. The players, it is restricted. I don't think that player movement, like unfettered free agency, you can just leave at any time, would be good for all parties involved. I think the sitting out a year I think is a decent rule. I like the grad transfer rule. I don't think they should touch that. If you graduate, you should be able to go play somewhere else. Coaches get up in arms about that. I think you're going to see them talk a lot more about this hardship waiver stuff that all parties involved, I think, are uncomfortable with the direction it's been taking, of course, from the, you know institutional standpoint. But I really am intrigued by what you said, that this would sort itself out a little bit. The problem you might have is, and this might be just a doomsday scenario that wouldn't actually take place is like what if you had like 30 guys transfer out from a program then you can barely field a team you're putting those other players safety at risk because you you can't play them every down there's a lot to consider if you're just going to go all right anybody can transfer and play immediately i think i would take a hard look at that before i would move into that but also you're right. If you start washing out a program after a program, unless you're just the most elite talented guy, you're like a Randy Mosk s kind of guy, you know, you're going to basically choose your way out of any kind of meaningful playing time at a decent program.
1: And here's something that's important to remember when this is a very complicated system. And so when we're saying things or I'm saying things like it's a free market. If you did this, it would work itself out. That means the entire thing would have to be free which means that both sides would be making decisions that would ultimately lead to the best for whatever's going on, which means ultimately you would have contracts. That's what you would have. Contracts don't exist for entertainers and sportsmen and women because someone dreamt them up in a centralized organization. They exist because of what you just said, Alan. People are fighting for resources and you and I take a risk on an 18-year-old by saying we really like this guy. I'm going to risk four years of committing to him by giving him this contract. If I don't feel that strongly about that person, I don't commit that much capital or time to them. So contracts exist in the sporting world for that reason. They would exist in college sports if college sports was a free market, a professional enterprise like a European soccer academy in the same way. We're not there. We've got a hybrid system, which is why you get kind of both sides of the nastiness sometimes. And obviously this transfer portal creates other issues. But I think to answer your question, the coaches have contracts. If they leave their contract, the school gets remuneration. They are creating a contract. They can choose the stipulation of that contract. They can choose how to be compensated from that contract. They are choosing to bear that risk. The player, of course, does not have a similar situation because they can't go leave and sign a different contract. But this is also true of the employer-employee relationship anywhere. True. Right. If you are Kevin Durant... You can't leave the Warriors in the middle of last year. You cannot do it. Your contract will not allow you to do it. The team does not have to move you, will not move you. You are stuck until your window comes available because you chose to agree to sign that contract. So these players are, in essence, agreeing to sign a contract to play for these schools. But we live in a world now where we don't want to commit to anything. So a player committing and saying they're going to be there for four years means nothing. Now that means they're going to be there for as long as they darn well feel like it. When things go south, they want to transfer. So, the reality of that is, like we mentioned, follow the majority of these players that have transferred around and you tell me where they've gone. Because most of them go nowhere. That kind of guy doesn't go anywhere. Now, Chris Steele is a different case. He's such a young guy. He very well could have been homesick. He very well still could be really good. But if you look, most of the time when these players have to transfer, they're missing a piece they're going to need. Right now, I'm not talking about grades, I'm not talking about legal trouble. I'm talking about like just leaving a program because you got an issue. You're mentally soft. You've got something wrong. That's going to show up later. It takes everything. And I mean everything to make it to the NFL. You've got to be smart. You've got to be talented. You got to be skilled. and have to be resilient. And if you're soft and you can't handle the programming and you can't live with a roommate, you can't handle being across the country. Yes, you're a kid, but you're already well behind the guys who aren't. So, you know, can we solve these problems? No. Are Alan and I saying that we think the college students are being treated fairly now? No, we're not. We've talked this before. You know, certainly I think guys should have ownership rights to their likeness. They should be able to make money like any other student can. But if you're asking why that isn't possible, it's because they're so worried about boosters and other people giving them money in illegitimate jobs that they've created this, you know, five gajillion rule-based system to prevent bad stuff from happening, which now just keeps getting more and more convoluted, right? So it's 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 an impossible thing, I believe to solve in the current structure it's in, any new thing and new regulation you add is going to tend to just make it more ridiculous. And that's kind of the problem of college athletics as a whole right now. We're at the mercy of it. Coaches are at the mercy of it. And I think you have to do your best in recruiting to identify guys who are not going to be like that.
0: We could probably talk about this forever, but let's keep moving. Uh, A little Twitter news, if that can be called news. Trevon Grimes, are. Budding star receiver took to Twitter after Chris Steele left. Posted a picture of him essentially standing over Grimes, um, saying something to the effect, if I can remember correctly, about uh, if you're not a Gator, you're Gator bait. Seemed like at least some of the guys on the team weren't all that sad to see Chris Steele go. They felt like maybe he had thrown the program under the bus on his way out the door. What what's your take on Trevon Grimes? and others' response to the Chris Steele situation.
1: I loved it, and I loved it because if the narrative that I'm laying out is true, it's what you want. If the narrative I'm laying out is wrong, then you've got a toxic culture, and that's really bad. I don't think that's the case. So I think there was no transfer request filed. I think this guy's looking for an excuse to get out of the program. I think the players themselves kind of follow what happens. Now, keep in mind, players are far more likely to unite with other players than they are the coaching staff. They hear the news, they ask the questions, they find out what's going on, they make their own assessment. At about that time, Grimes goes to Twitter and makes a post. Other players support it. What does that mean? That means to me that players have heard the facts, listened to the story, and they themselves think this is a guy who's trying to get out of the program. It's far, far better than Dan Mullen going to the media and saying, hey, look, this guy never filed this request. He's an 18-year-old. He should have done this. We would have helped him. That just doesn't look great to have a head coach coach chastising an 18-year-old kid for wanting to go home. It's much better for the team to come to the aid of the coaching staff by saying, if you don't want to be here, we don't want you here. We don't need you here. We will band together. This is a culture where we stick with each other. And if you're just going to vacate and exit and ride out and then make accusations, we're not going to stand for that. I think down the road, you would always want your players and your leaders to stand up for this kind of stuff. And right now, as we talked about last pod, Alan, Florida has a leadership vacuum on the team. This would be something where you would love for your quarterback to come out and say something. Hey, we're united as players. You know, we want everyone to, to to want to be here to be here. But that's not Felipe Franks. So getting something and getting some activity that shows the other recruits that hey, listen, we're not down for this. This is not what we stand for. This program's not in shambles. I think is a good message to be sent, even if it is a rather aggressive posturing message. I'm not saying you demean somebody, but this concept of the players taking ownership of their own team when a guy's leaving it, I think is a good sign culture wise.
0: Yeah. If the players felt like the coaching staff had mistreated Chris Steele, I think there would have been silence at best. They would not have been out there kind of going after him that you're right. that I think the players would naturally understand the plight of a player more than empathize with a coach. So it does show me a lot about what's going on inside those walls and how they're feeling, at least a certain segment of the players. Okay. Let's pivot away from hell week. James, a lot of other news popping up here in the last couple weeks, depending on your taste for this kind of stuff is either really big news or just whatever. So the athletic department has announced that UF will be doing a home and home series with the university of Colorado in 2028 and 29 and the university of Texas in 2030 and 31. James, do you care about this at all? Or is it just so far away that you're like, wake me up when it's 2028?
1: I actually totally care about it. We talked about this, talking about how it would be so great to see bigger name teams of better away venues to go to. And yeah, it's very far away, but it's better than it not being on the calendar at all. And and I think that that's awesome. I mean, when we get to that point in 2030 and 2031, if I'm still alive on this earth, you better believe that that heading out to to Texas to watch Florida versus Texas would be incredible. That's amazing. What a cool prospect, right? Uh, and same thing for Colorado. Colorado is a program that's been up and down. It's had great history, but Boulder is amazing. Yeah, really, really cool stadium. Super fun trip. So I love it. I love these more intriguing matchups. I'd like to see more of them. I'd love to have one every single year. And in fact, I got the chance to hang out with uh, with Scott Strickland, who who assured me that he listens to our podcast rather regularly which is cool but he asked me a couple of questions on the frequency of how often should we play Miami would you like to see us play you know bigger schools where you have these kind of matchups where you risk losing or other ones and of course I echoed our thoughts we had on the podcast but it's a fun conversation because I do think Scott is far more in tune with how the fans want to view these games than other ADs are and I think to Dan Mullen's credit although these games are far away now because of how hard it is to negotiate them Uh, Dan Mullen is also totally about playing better opponents, better situations, better schools. Something I think Steve Spurrier was known for not wanting to do. It was a different era back then, but I think Spurrier still comes from the school of I don't want to play a single harder opponent if I don't have to because I want to win. I think Dan more embraces the reality that he wants to win first and foremost, but that there is something to be said for having these Georgia-Notre Dame-like matchups that are really incredible for the fan base and the sport. So I'm in favor of it. I like it.
0: I like it a lot. I think these are two pretty cool venues. Now, the Colorado one got announced first, and people are like, really, this is your big news? And I'm sure it's just the fact that Colorado is willing to announce it first. And then the one that people were speculating and hoping for Texas popped pop the next day or so. I love this. I, it frustrates me about college football that you can't schedule a game, you know, unless it's 10 years out. Guys, there there has to be a way around this, right? Anyway, hopefully this is going to be true of most major programs moving forward. I think this is an indication they think that the playoff is going to be expanded and that you're going to need some of these data points on your schedule to get into the playoff. Especially at eight, you're you're less worried about how many losses you had and more about your strength of schedule. It's kind of the NCAA basketball model where you play a really tough non-conference and hope that you win a couple of them. So this has been tough for Florida for a long time. Florida gets a ton of crap. I see this all the time. Florida hasn't played a non-conference game out of state since like 1933. It's not quite that long. I think it's like 91. But I get it. We play Florida State every year. This happens to be in our state. You know, we play Georgia at a neutral site every year. We play Miami occasionally, but it's in our state. I'm sure if there was another team close by that we thought – be worthwhile we would have played the game you know like a miami-esque type team so i think florida gets criticized too much for that now I might just be a too much of a homer for that but i love the neutral site stuff that we've done with michigan and now with miami coming up this year i think you're going to see more and more of that hopefully they have a few more things that they can negotiate between now and 2028 but i think it's a good step forward for college football in general, and it's a good step forward for the Gators. And, you know, I think Dan Mullen's probably fine. If he's still here in 2028, that means he's been amazingly successful and losing a game to Colorado in 2028 is not going to affect him that much. So I'm sure he's all for it uh, because either it doesn't matter to him or he's still here because he's killing it. Okay, a few more news and notes Mostly around linebackers. Rashad Jackson entered the portal. Kylan Johnson, who previously announced that he was going to transfer lands at the University of Pittsburgh. And D1 Black, if that's how you say his name. Uh, one of our higher-ranked recruits, recruits uh, is ineligible. Didn't make the grades. Is going to have to go the JUCO route. Now, that was always a potential outcome for him. The speculation was that it was going to be tight for him to make the grades. James, react to any or all of this?
1: Rashad Jackson, I'm happy about. We've talked about that before. Nice Addition guy, by good subtraction. Guy. And I shouldn't say happy. I and mean, that's not like a ruthless thing like, hey, Rashad, I hate you. That's not it at all. But when he was in the field, he was a liability. And every minute he got was a minute a younger guy should get a chance to learn and make mistakes with. And I think coaching staff sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times, especially at this stage of the curve, are far more likely to play the safe guy than the super risky guy who will make a big mistake and cost him a game. And I don't think we're at that stage of our development, and I just don't think that he was capable of playing at this level. That's a good one. Colin Johnson was interesting for me. We talked about him a lot in the podcast. His freshman year, sophomore year, I thought he played good games, so he's a really good coverage guy. In fact, a lot of times we used him to cover opposing teams' best running backs. But now under the 3-4, as we mentioned, he was going to be a casualty. And we, we said that. He loses his place. He's undersized, doesn't fit that system well. Uh, so I wish him well. I think he could be a, a good player in college, especially in the right system. And I think he'll find a good place there in Pitt. And then losing Black obviously hurts us. Again, this raises questions. Every coaching staff is going to wind up taking guys that that wind up being risks. But like we talk about ad nauseum when it comes to recruiting, Allen is this is why you have to get a certain percentage of guys in the top 300. He's a hard, you know, 150th kind of guy ranking wise and if you have if you have 10 of these guys and losing one of them is fine if you have four or five of them like we do then losing one of them is, is huge and that's a big loss for us he's a linebacker uh, we need the depth there we need the development there that hurts i get why the staff took the risk but that hurts and so now you're looking at our our 2019 class where you're essentially down you know three of your of your top recruits which we'll talk about in a little bit as to far as what that means so those are my reactions some good some bad and some you know Sad
0: agree with black. You know, I, I think there's still a chance he ends up on the team a couple years, but traditionally when you have a guy fall out of the class, you don't ever see him again. Um, he seems to be very high on Florida throughout the process. So maybe we see him again. Like you said, with Rashad Jackson, it's probably addition by subtraction there, unless we just have an incredible spate of injuries. My hope is that he wouldn't see the field. Now, obviously you'd rather play him than a walk on like we were doing a couple of years ago. Uh and Kylan Johnson is a grad transfer. I just said I'm pro that. You know, if you if you graduate, you know, more power to you and you got a better spot that you can find, better system, that's great. Uh, I think this isn't gonna hopefully show up on the field too much. We essentially only play two linebackers anyway. I know that nominally we're a three four. One of those linebackers is essentially a defensive end only drops occasionally. And then we play almost exclusively nickel. So you've got David Reese and you've got somebody else. I I think the ascension of Bernie to a starting linebacker, moving him from potential defensive back spot shores this up. You've got Miller and Houston and you got some other guys. You got some freshmen coming in. As long as David Reese stays healthy, I think this is not a big problem for this year. Um, Now in terms of, Jackson and Johnson now black as of course will affect you moving forward. But I think there's enough guys out there that you can make this work. We'll see if it bites us in the ass. That's because we've had a ton of guys go down and I don't know that either of those three guys were actually going to fix it anyway.
1: Let's switch gears and talk entirely about recruiting here for a couple of minutes. I've got a couple of good questions on this. Jeffrey Hoy, friend of the program asks us, it seems like the feeling in Gator Nation is that we're always behind in recruiting and consistently losing out to Alabama, Clemson, and now frustratingly UGA. What would it take for us to be good at recruiting again? What does it take to be a top-tier recruiter, and what are we lacking? Why can't we get there? Or is it simply a lack of boosters who own car dealerships in Gainesville? Winky face. What do you think? <laughs>
0: What would it take for us to be good at recruiting again? I think for this program, and we've said this, we're going to have to really blow it out on the field. Uh, I don't think that Dan Mullen is that ace recruiter type, um, but that he can be a guy who takes very good recruits and make them great. We've talked a lot about being at or near the top five. And I think you can win if you are, one of the best developers and you're taking top tier talent and making them even better. The facilities is something that gets brought up a lot. I have no idea. That's one of those things I don't think you can be way behind. I think it will hurt you. But if you have the best facilities in the country, does that automatically make you great at recruiting? I don't think so. Do changes need to get made on the staff? That remains to be seen. Or if you're swapping out development for recruiting that's a give and take you've got to balance as a head coach i think dan mullen is committed to the guys that he has for the most part i'm not ready to give up on these guys i think they've made progress we talked a lot in some previous podcasts that they're hitting some of the metrics moving forward that you know doesn't guarantee success but it doesn't there aren't negative indicators so i'm not ready to you know, quit on these guys yet? But it is something. Obviously, we're going to be paying a ton of attention to moving forward.
1: We talk about this quite a bit when we get to our, our spring episodes, and and my my opinion is, of course, we're we're definitely behind Alabama, Clemson, and UGA. And yes, everybody is. This is where it splits off. This is where, if you're Tyler Rummery and you you watch the message boards intently and you subscribe to that culture, it's because we're not paying players enough money, we don't have enough bagmen, so to speak, and Alabama and Clemson and UGA employ bagmen, and UGA employs the most bagmen, which is why they're getting players. That may or may not be true to a certain extent, that may or may not be the entire reason why that's possible. But I can tell you for sure that certain coaches are just endowed and gifted recruiters. And certain coaches are not. So there's a ceiling for each one of these coaches when it comes to recruiting and some guys can't be other guys and vice versa. Dan Mullen needs to maximize his recruiting ceiling, whatever that is, and then he needs to get guys to supplement his recruiting if he himself is not a great recruiter. I think it's fair to say that Dan Mullen will never be Urban Meyer, Nick Saban, or Dabo Sweeney. He's not going to be those guys. That's not who he is. That's not his personality. He's not the coolest guy in the room. He's also not the most intense guy in the room. He's just not that guy. So he's probably always going to find himself between 8 and 12, unless he gets guys on his staff that can take him there, which is what I think he needs to look at doing. If you are Dan Mullen and you're a phenomenal developer of talent, which I think he is, then you can afford to sacrifice some of your coaches. Oh, like your receiving coach, right? Your wide receivers coach does not have to be great. In fact, it's not that important in all reality. Sneaky, sneaky job there. Not important. Very very not important. It's not hard to teach these receivers how to run routes, especially at the college level, especially in these offenses. You don't need that to be a focus. That guy is going to be a phenomenal recruiter, right? And you can go on and on and on. I think the goal, though, for Dan Mullen is to replicate what Urban Meyer did. Urban Meyer really had his chief and best recruiter be a guy that I went to high school with named Mark Pantoni, who did not play college football, who was not at all part of the landscape, who becomes like the czar of recruiting. He tracks, he follows, he makes sure the coaches are doing all these right things at all the right time, and then make sure that Urban is talking to them at the right time. That's the way to do it if you're Dan Mullen. And then you hire one or two dynamo recruiters, and you make sure everything works out the best you can. As far as the the money goes and paying players, that will solve itself on its own. As far as the facility goes, we are way, way behind. I think that does influence players' choices. There is absolutely no doubt that it does. We've talked about that before. We are addressing that. That will soon no longer be an issue. But most importantly, by far, what does Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, any top recruiter have in common? They dominate the state and area they're in. And right now, Dan Mullen gets an F from me last year on the state of Florida. We didn't dominate it. We merely held on. When Miami's terrible and Florida State's terrible, we have got to own the state of Florida in recruiting. That should be his mission. He should not be focused on California or anywhere else. That's the mission that's the goal. That's what you've got to do. So I think that's what needs to be changed. And that, that goes into our next question, Alan, that, that Josh Bieber asks. We're obviously not built to recruit like Bama and UGA, which I think he means by that is where they're not paying players and all the coaches. So if we're going to be getting, let's say, the seventh or eighth best class, are we able to win? And this is the question we asked when I famously issued the bet that Dan Mullen would not win an SEC title because he went with titles. But assuming he does win an SEC title with about the 7th or 8th best class, Alan, what do you think will be the number one or number two reasons as to how he accomplishes that, knowing we're going to face two to three teams every single year who are going to have better talent on their team?
0: Well, uh, it's going to be through development and strategy and tactics. And I think those are things that Mullen is excellent at. I think if he has an elite quarterback, I think you can beat those teams. Again, you may not beat them all every time, but you know, the, the seventh best class is not that far away, in my opinion. Again, these Alabama Clemson classes that are coming in are crazy. They're off the charts of what historically teams have done. I don't know that you're ever going to be able to catch them because I don't know that that's going to be replicated in the history of college football. So if we can move up slightly, you know, seven, six, five, if you're around 10, that's, that's a bigger gap. And you can play call and you can have a quarterback who can execute your system to its fullest. I think tactically he has some advantages. He's going to make the right decisions in game. We've seen that. I'm confident we can win those games. I don't think we're that far away. Now, again, we're just going into year two. There's still some holes in the program. This is not a quick fix if you're trying to bring down Alabama or Clemson or Georgia. But let's see what happens this year. I I think, hopefully, we're going to be pleased with the results. Now, that's a lot of assumptions about offensive line, Felipe Franks, on and on and on. Those things break right. We're close. We're close.
1: I'll give you the simplest answer to this question, Alan. You need a veteran team with an elite quarterback. That's how you do it. Because veterans will make up for the lack of talent because of their experience, but you have got to have an elite quarterback. That is the difference maker. That is how you beat a team that has more talent than you. It is really the best and most surefire way for UF to do it, which means realistically we do not compete for the SEC or a national title every year. If we maintain a recruiting level that's consistently behind everyone else's, but one of every three or four years, if the stars align correctly, we're able to win. I think that's the path you're looking for. If we're going to assume Dan Mullen cannot crack those top five classes, of course, there's no reason why Florida cannot get there like we talk about. There's absolutely no reason why we're in the best recruiting state. We're the best school in the best recruiting state. We need to get there. But I think that's what you're looking for. Uh, And Dan Mullen has the ingredients to do all of that. It has been concerning on this very podcast, as we've talked about, with the level of quarterback recruiting the past two years Dan's been here so far. Nothing really to show for yet. Emery seems to be tracking, but most people would think he's not going to be the hero. We nerfed this year entirely. Next year, you got a guy coming in that people are really high on. So keep track of that. Okay, let me jump down to this.
0: If you were the head coach of a football program at a major university, we have to make these kinds of choices. How much would recruiting, or excuse me, how much would character matter to you in recruiting? Like if you're trying to make a choice how much do you put that into the equation?
1: It would be almost everything. And in fact, I'm experiencing this in my personal life right now, Alan. Uh, if you listen to the podcast last year, you know that I played in this professional flag football league with some notable Gators this year. I was asked to coach a professional team where I have carte blanche to pick who I want, how I want, have camps, select teams. And we've been doing that uh, a couple notable people that are on that team, Michael Vick, Danny Werfel's playing again, a host of other NFL players. But what I can tell you is I've had calls with about a hundred or so guys who have played in the NFL, the CFL, arena league, big name colleges. And what I key on is what kind of person they are, because at some point in time, these guys are almost interchangeable. If receiver XYZ is 8% better than this other guy, but the other guy's character is 50% better than XYZ, I'm taking the other guy. And I think you have to build a culture. You have got to build a culture. And the only way you build a culture is to have guys you can trust, depend on, like to be around, can execute your system and philosophy and agree with your vision or your goal. And for me, my goal is to build the best possible team I can, which means you're going to have to be a competitor. You're going to have to earn your spot. Nothing is entitled to you. And the only way you get guys like that are guys that are self-aware, understand it's not all about them and want to win for the team. I think you've got to do your best to identify that once you've identified that Alan, the beauty is now you can take your risks. Now you can say out of every class of 20 or 25 guys, I'm going to take two projects, two guys that don't fit that rubric could have sky high talent and I'm going to take them and I'm going to trust my culture brings them in. And if they don't and they wash out, that's okay. Cause I've got 18 other guys who are solid guys. That's exactly by the way, what you see a guy like Bill Belichick do. If you've got a great culture, you've got a lot of guys that are working well together then you can take the risks, but the problem becomes if you're taking 5, 10, 11, 12 risky guys each time, you run the risk of your entire culture falling apart, and then you're done, and then you're dead, so you can't sell out for talent, you've got to have a plan, you've got to have a rubric, and if I'm the coach of Florida, and I'm Dan Mullen, character, reliability, kind of how grounded are you, how do you see the game of football, how smart are you, would be things that would really, really matter to me, and I would take lesser talent at the beginning to build the culture to where I could take better talent at the end. And that's hard to do, Alan, because us included, fans for sure, are very myopic with what they're looking at. And if you don't win right away, you can be out. And I think that's why on this program, we try to take a much more measured path. Although sometimes we're the first to call fire this guy, fire that guy. But that's because we're looking at the progress on the field. And I could take a lower ranked recruiting class if the progress gets better. But then if your recruiting progress also falls apart next year, that's not progress, right? And so you kind of have to see what's your vision, what's your goal. Is that growing? Is that building? Evaluate it that way. So for me, it would mean almost everything. It would be very, very important to my culture building. Uh, If you're the head coach, Alan, how much would it matter to you?
0: A lot. I want people that I can trust to not only do the right thing on the field, but off the field. You get in trouble when you start cutting corners like that. Now, again, you can have some guys and you, and you, sometimes you don't know a guy could be representing one thing for a long time. You're recruiting this guy for a year. Maybe you don't know actually what he's going to do when he steps foot on campus. So I don't want to blame coaches. If if they have a few guys here and there who go off the rails, that's going to happen when you're taking 25, 18 year olds. Now it's hard. We can sit here and criticize and we go, Hey, why aren't you in the top 10? Well, maybe I'm not touching some of these guys in the top 10 because I don't like their character and this is the best class I could put together with the best character. That's some kind of composite. And everyone's got their equation about how much they value each of those things. I'm with you. I would I would elevate that very highly. But again, that's not something you can put on paper. It's not something you can you know, time them in the 40-yard dash. So I don't know. It's a skill set that some guys maybe have. And it's hard for us to read into that too much let's talk about Dan Mullen kind of coming out of this hell week how do you think he handled everything relating to the program you know his trouble with his coaches trouble with his recruits everyone kind of yelling that the sky is falling do you have an opinion on how he handled all of this
1: i thought he handled the reaction to it just fine he was calm he had a, he talked about his process which i think is he i think we know that Dan Mullen does have processes Which is important, right? I think if you looked at McIlwain, he was all over the place. You really had no idea what he was doing. If you looked at Muschamp, he was all over the place. He had really no idea what he was doing when it came to like a consistent addressing of these themes. Mullen does have a plan. His plan is to wait, is to be patient, is not to be reactionary. Uh, I think that that's a nice plan as a meta strategy. But I think sometimes you have to use what's called an exploitative strategy and you need to do something different. I think some of these cases should have had him acting faster to suspend people, to investigate the facts, to work out what was going on, especially in the case of his own coach who had an issue that was decently well-documented. Yes, it's cyber-stalking. Yes, it's text messaging. He didn't actually go over there and do that. However, I think once you get wind of that, you have to have a man-to-man conversation. you, You need to do the right thing and say, you're affecting the public perception of this university and this program. And because my job is to do what is best for this program at all times, I've got to sit you aside. I cannot allow for anything to affect this brand negatively. I'm not saying you did or didn't do it, but that is my job. So I would have liked to have seen him act faster on those sort of things. I would have seen him like to have mentioned the importance of the effect on the brand. I would have liked him to have said, hey, I don't want to see a guy ever leave the University of Florida. I, want, I think this is the best brand. I think this is the best school to play for. But if it comes to the point to where a guy doesn't see it that way or he can't do it that way, I certainly don't want to have a guy here who doesn't want to give his all to this university. Those two things need to be aligned, so I think he could have done a better job with the messaging with that kind of viewpoint, whereas it seems to me he sort of just maintained it and now he's kind of going around to all the gator boosters and he's giving a lot of talks about how this happened and that happened and uh, I think he's fine with it. I think he's got the plan in the process he's continues to be the term of patience, patience, patience when be patient, which is fine. But I guess if anything, Alan, I'm saying I would have liked to have seen him be a little bit more proactive about aggressively addressing the brand, his viewpoint, how it matters. how he's going to protect that brand <coughs> at all costs versus sort of waiting for X, Y, Z you know, dime to drop and then dealing with it by saying I was being patient.
0: All right, let's discuss a little bit more from about Dan Mullen. There's a question from Jacqueline Addy. Want us to discuss Mullinson's Mullins' strengths and weaknesses now that we have more data. Discuss your thoughts about his trajectory. What does he need to improve on? What's better than you expected at this point? I'll go ahead and jump in on this one first. I think we've talked about his strengths, both being a in player development, and really appreciated him tactically game to game, doing the things in game that make the most sense for the most part. That's the data I guess we've collected. Thoughts on his trajectory. I, I think I said at the end of the season that I was encouraged that he, he had this program further farther along than I thought he would at this point that we improved throughout the year and then recruiting closed fairly well. Now we need to mention, we lost three of our top recruits from uh, this 2019 class. So this class maybe looks a little different in hindsight. I'd like to look at more data about how often that happens to people. Uh, you know, once that class closes, but that is something that needs to be noted moving forward. This class is not actually as high as it was because we lost some of the best players out of it. So what does he need to improve on? I think we've talked about his recruiting status over and over again. That still remains to be seen what level he can ascend to and what's better than we expected. I have to say his development of quarterbacks. I don't know that um, I expected him to fail at this, but I think he took Felipe further than I thought he could in one year. And so that's something that we knew was a potential strength of his, but it even exceeded my expectations. What about you?
1: I think his strengths are organization, player development, uh, certainly quarterback development, offensive coordinating, game planning, all of his strengths. His weaknesses certainly continue to seem to be recruiting. Uh, Maybe even identifying the right type of talent. He's developed great talent, for sure. Mississippi State had a plethora of players go into the NFL draft. All of them were recruited by Dan Mullen's staff. But like we mentioned, those players were the unsung heroes. It's nice to have that happen. But if you're going to win at Florida or Alabama or Clemson or LSU, you can't have a whole team of unsung heroes. It doesn't work. You've got to have a team of sung heroes with a handful of unsung heroes. And That's the question we're asking. I think that still is weakness. The only thing I have to add to what Alan said is to drive home the point that we talked and I talked at length in the off season about what I needed to see that recruiting class get to. And we said, hey, we slid into a point that was achievable. That is no longer. We lost our top 50 guy. We lost another top 200 guy. We slid back another tier. So we said we were a tier three. We're now tier four, maybe even tier five for this past recruiting class, which make no mistake about it, takes a very real toll on the team. Uh, So keep that in mind. That means we missed this past year's targeting recruiting goal, which means next year becomes that much more important. I didn't expect the recruiting to be better. That's kind of the point. The day he got hired, we podcasted a week later and said, this is going to be his weakness. I think he was better than we expected. And now that we lost these guys, which may or may not be his fault in totality, leaves us where I expected the recruiting to be. There's a lot of slack to be picked up there. If Dan Mullen, make no mistake about this, if Dan Mullen can get his recruiting to fifth or sixth, or what we're going to call tier two every single year, this guy could compete could for national championship every two, two and a half years. I have no doubt about it based on what I've seen, but right now we're far away from that. We're at least two or three tiers behind that. Our current roster is several tiers behind that, which means you're asking a lot of Dan Mullen every single year to win a bunch of close games with a flawed roster And as we talked about this year, Alan, we've got a serious problem at offensive line. There's a lot of preseason hype. The hype train's strong for us. A lot of people have us in the top 10. But I think those are not football savvy people to recognize. We've got a serious issue to replace on the O-line. But all that being said, I think the data suggests this trajectory is absolutely upward. It's positive, which is something we could not have said about McElwain at this point in time, even though we were winning games. It was kind of flat. And uh, if you look at Muschamp, you had that kind of nice year. But in reality, the program was recruiting well in spots and gaps, but not recruiting well in others. And then you had a, you know, kind of fall on your face year. So this year won't be a make or break year for Dan Mullen. But obviously, how do you feel about him? And We'll leave this question as rhetorical for now. How do you feel as a listener about Dan Mullen if we win eight games this year? Does that mean we stepped back? Does that mean things aren't as good? Does that mean we're going backwards? I mean, that would depend on a lot of factors. So keep that in mind when you're looking at where we're going.
0: I'm going to kind of move part of Jack's question in with TJ Nowick's. Uh, Jack just simply says, discuss Franks on all the hype. I guess Felipe has been getting some hype you know, coming out of the spring game. And TJ says, I've seen dis- some discussions comparing the career arc from a statistics perspective of Franks and Drew Locke of Missouri, citing some similarities between each of their freshman and sophomore years. Do you see these similarities in terms of progression and believe there's some semblance between the two players careers at this point? And two, do you think that Franks can develop along the
1: same trajectory as Drew Locke under Dan Mullen? It's a tough question. I want to give Franks all of his due by saying he's improved, as we've mentioned on this very podcast from where he once was. Yet that spring game was a total fakery. That was not real. They sat in a fake static zone that he knew exactly what was coming. He was running zone beaters, which we talked about in that podcast. So if you didn't listen to that one, go back and check it out. We kind of walked through what happened. Until I see it happen in the game, which is what Drew Locke was doing every year, and the game is getting better and better. And look, Franks got a lot better last year, but he still wasn't passing the ball like Drew Locke was. And the stats were different from Missouri, but Missouri's not Florida. Also, different situation, different schedule. I think Franks has a higher ceiling than Drew Locke. I'll put that out there. Franks has an incredibly high ceiling, given his arm, his size, his mobility. I mean, the sky's the limit for this guy. So that's fair to say that he certainly could wind up with a similar draft status as Drew Locke. Uh, he could wind up with a higher draft status as Drew Locke. I think at this point in time, TJ, it's too difficult to know. Different offenses, different situations. Comparing stats is is one thing. I guess the real question is what's the ceiling of Felipe? And it's unlimited. Do I expect him to get there based upon what I've seen thus far? No, it would surprise me. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. He has definitely steadily been improving under Dan Mullen's careful, watchful guidance, which is great. I think if you asked me this question last offseason, I probably did say in the podcast, I think Franks is capped at a level that he can't get to access his ceiling. I think now here I am saying he could maybe get there, but I'm not going to base that on the spring game, which was built for him to dominate in, which was like a hype machine. I need to see it against real opponents that are going to run a real defense. So either way, it's possible. Now that's a change for me, Alan.
0: That is. I think the lock comparisons are interesting. They're different players. They're running different offenses. Locke had some very up and down moments early on and then kind of settled into a guy who, if you approach defending him a certain way, he was going to shred you. Now, he still had some moments where he looked kind of rough, which is why he wasn't picked in the top 10. He's got a live arm. He's got decent size. You're right. I do think that Felipe could ascend to that. I don't know if he's got the mental makeup that Drew Locke has. So that I didn't watch Drew Locke in and out week to week. So that's Felipe's major hangup, right? Can he read a defense? Can he make decisions quick enough? That'll determine how far he goes. You're right. It's not the physical traits. It's going to be the intangible traits. So we'll see. Can Dan get him to the point in this offense or he maybe even outplays what Drew Locke did at Missouri, potentially. Does that mean he would even be drafted higher than Drew Locke? Maybe not. NFL could look at him and say, You did you had a lot of success. We don't think you can do it at this level. All of those things are in play. All those outcomes are possible, which is why it's kind of exciting at this moment in May of 2019. We don't know what we're gonna get from Felipe. That's makes it intriguing and kind of scary. But the possibilities out there, and I think that's giving Gator Nation a lot of hope. All right, go to a question from Jeff Markham: Is Mullen's loyalty to certain assistants starting to cost the program in terms of recruiting performance? And I think he's referencing that he's had guys like Billy Gonzalez and John Hefsey with him for a long time, and I guess he's saying that maybe those guys aren't the world's best recruiters. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the question is directly, is it affecting their recruiting performance? Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, John Hevesy is known to be a horrifically bad recruiter, That he doesn't recruit. He's terrible. He's unrelatable. He's gruff. He's not likable. He's a phenomenal line coach. So you're definitely sacrificing that. Uh, that may be a position where you want to sacrifice that at this stage of Dan Mullen's building of the program. And I think that would even make some sense I think as you start to crown this hill of getting Florida back to where it needs to get to, he's a guy you have to replace uh, no matter how good of a coach he is, or you've got to find a way to recruit top of the line talent, which he never has been able to do. So those two things would, would meet, they would cross. They would meet at some point in time. Some people in life, Alan are builders and others are like finishers. And it's the right time to have a heavacy right now. We're in the building stage. He may not be the right guy later, And that's okay. Now, whether or not Dan Mullen realizes that comes to sort of your how how much of a, a strategist you really are, understanding where you are as a program, where you are as a staff. So to answer your question directly, it's definitely affecting recruiting performance. However, right now, would we want to change that? I would probably say no. Looking at last year's performance level, how the team performed, where we are kind of rebuilding it. Now's not the time for that. But in a year or two, you're probably asking that question and you're seriously saying, is he going to hold on to these guys when he could get a guy that could really blow it out of the water recruiting, who's kind of like a hot young name. Then I think you have to start to look yourself in the mirror and say, I need to to make this change.
0: If you had a staff full of excellent recruiters and your O-line coach was so-so right? recruiting, but excellent coach, you would just be like, fine, we'll take this as a net negative because whoever we bring in here, he's going to make excellent. And he can help you identify who does he want to bring in. We'll bring him in for him. I don't know that we're there yet. The, the guy that's interesting is Billy Gonzalez, a guy who's been at Florida before. He's been with Mullen for a long time. It's hard to go, this, is, this guy could be better. This guy could be worse. You hear rumors. We don't know. When a guy commits, it's not like he goes, 90% of why I'm here is this guy. I think you just have to look at the results. And, you know, I mean, you're obviously limited at Mississippi State. I'm still waiting. I'd still be willing to wait and see on this. Now you can fill your staff out with a bunch of great recruiters at some of those positions, like linebackers, which we seem to have. A guy who's an excellent recruiter, brought in some great guys, defensive back, wide receiver, which Billy Gonzalez does. Uh I don't know. There's a ways to massage it, especially with the 10th assistant now. Or I would hate to lose a guy like John Hevesy if he is actually the developer of offensive lineman that he seems to be, that'd be a major blow. It's hard to replace that with a guy who's an elite recruiter and an even excellent builder of offensive lineman. You, you bring some guys in. I mean, offensive line is notoriously difficult because these guys need a lot of work. So if you're bringing in these hype guys and they don't develop, then what do you have? So that would be a position I'd be loathe to sacrifice player development at. We we'll have to see about that now. If you can, if you're at the top of, you know, the heap, and you can have a chance to bring in a guy who could do both, obviously you would do that.
1: Let's look at a question, or maybe a statement, then a question from Alexandra Smith, also a longtime supporter of the show. She says, "I seriously think this show would be great on ESPN." That's fantastic. I'll, if, if I'll call Jimmy Patara and let him know. Yeah, if any of you can help us get on the ESPN. We'll do it. Uh, Others others of you have mentioned that before. I'd love to have a telestrator and video and things to illustrate stuff. So, hey, if you have a way to make that happen, we will sit down with the producers and pitch our show. She wants to know, Alan, your thoughts on the Gators' strength and conditioning routine under Mullen and how that compares to Muschamp and McElwain. This is something that's often discussed It's funny because it happens behind
0: closed doors. Now we can, when they get on the field, we can see just like this guy catch the ball. Yes or no. Did he score a touchdown? Yes or no. Did he make a tackle? Yes or no. Strength and conditioning can often be something that's pointed out when a team isn't having success. Now that could be overblown. Anytime you bring in a new guy, it's me like, yeah, this guy's the best. The old guy was the worst. That's always the narrative. Now I'll talk about McElwain. The There was so much smoke there, there had to be some fire. The comments that were made about his strength and conditioning program with guys having to go supplement outside is kind of crazy. And Nick Savage seems to be getting results on the field. I have no reason to believe that he's not doing an excellent job. Now, again, I don't know. That's something that is impossible to fully articulate. Now, I will say there is a thought now that essentially – the strength coach is maybe the second most important guy in the program. And the reason for that is there's a lot of NCAA rules about how often a coach can interact with a player. There's certain hour limits. There's very few restrictions about how much a strength coach can interact with them. And he's going to shepherd them through the summer. He's going to have the most contact. There's a reason that urban Myers brought his strength and conditioning coach everywhere. He's gone there's some high profile guys who are incredibly important to their program. and I think that college football is catching up to the fact that if you've got a premier strength and conditioning coach, not just for can he build muscle? That's important. That's the baseline. Essentially, he's going to help shape the culture and direction of your program. Nick Savage is a young guy. mac I mean, um, excuse me, Mullen could have gone out and gotten a lot of different guys He went back to Mississippi State and took Savage with him, so I think he likes him. All reports are that it's going great. Now, again, we're only into year one and a half here, but it seems to be night and day from under McIlwain, and I don't know if I have a good read on how it was under Muschamp.
1: Yeah, certainly McIlwain was a disaster uh, from the reports that we heard around here, maybe one of the worst strength coach regimes that a major program could have. And unfortunately, Muschamp was not much better. You had a guy named Jeff Dillman, who was a big believer in Olympic lifting. While Olympic lifting might be great for building strength, it's highly technical. And getting an entire team of 100 guys in a football team to do this could lead to a lot of injuries, which in fact it did. We were the most injured team for several years in a row under Dillman. Uh, I think there was plenty of reason to believe that he really was not a great strength coach. By all indications, Savage not only is a great strength coach, looking at how strong our team is, the muscle gains they're making, the size they're increasing, but what kind of guy he is. The players love him. He's very relatable. And as you mentioned, Alan, that's the most important role of a strength coach. Unfortunately for us, we weren't building strength very well previously from what the reports were, and we also didn't have a dynamo personality. So we were whiffing. So the comparison, Alexander, is pretty simple. It's way better now, and that is positively impacting the program, which is great. Alexandra also asked, discuss the NFL draft for the Gators in general, some of the players, where they went. Of course, I think the answer to that is disappointing for them. And then your thoughts on my boy and man crush, Will Greer, being chosen after Drew Locke. Will Greer, of course, going to the Carolina Panthers.
0: I'll start with the Drew Locke, Will Greer stuff. NFL is is funny. I, I think they're still catching up to the fact that you know, smaller guys can be effective. Now you did see Kylie Murray go number one overall. That's kind of crazy that a guy, his height went number one overall, but that's where the NFL is moving. You're seeing the success of some of these smaller guys. I still think there's a little bit of a stigma with will about his size and arm strength. Drew Locke just has more arm talent than he does. So that's always going to push him up draft boards. I think will has a chance to be really successful if he's in the right system and in the right organization. I don't think he's a guy that you could just roll out there and he's going to dominate. I do think he'll be successful. I do expect the probability to indicate that he'll be a starting quarterback in the NFL one day. Um, the rest of the Gators. This was a pretty rough showing. Uh, no first round picks. Juwan Taylor slipping to the second round, although ending up in a very good situation for himself with the Jaguars. Polite and Chauncey slipping. Martez Ivy, CC Jefferson not getting drafted. Uh, good news for boy Voshan getting drafted a little higher than I thought he would. Yeah, not great for all the guys that we put out there with very few being drafted in the places that they thought they were. Now, those guys could still be super successful. I think Chauncey's going to be in a good spot. Polite slid a ton because he apparently had terrible interviews and people had a lot of character questions. You didn't hear that a lot while he was here, but that was. The overwhelming narrative about him, he slipped all the way into the third round. So if he can put it together, I think he's going to be really successful. But as a group, like you said, I think the word in short is disappointing.
1: Yeah, extremely disappointing from the draft aspect. I think a lot of those guys were not prepared. There is a narrative coming out that Dan Mullen was not very helpful for them. So if you haven't heard that, now you've heard it. Uh, Take that and leave it. Kind of Dan Mullen is favoring his own players over some of those guys. And there was not a lot of assistance once they left. Not that he left them out in the cold, but there was not a lot of assistance on draft prep, pro day prep. He kind of left them to their own devices. Uh, Also stuff with signing agents. Some coaches are more proactive with signing agents and getting you in the combine process faster. Dan Mullen and their staff are very much, don't talk to an agent, don't look at an agent, don't build any relationships until later. I'm not blaming any of this on Dan Mullen. I'm just pulling out the fact that I think it has more to do with how some of those guys' character and work ethic was. I was very surprised at Chauncey. I think Chauncey's going to be a fantastic nickel in the NFL. I think someone got a, is going to get a good long-term player out of him. And I was excited that Voshan went a little higher, mainly because I caught so much crap from Tyler Rummery all all the years of liking him, even though knowing he had downside. But I think that goes to show what kind of talent Voshan Joseph is. The problem with Voshan is he's a project for an NFL team because he doesn't show the the football smarts, but make no mistake about it. The guy has high level talent and we're going to miss him doing some of the things he did, despite what some other people think. And lastly, my boy, Will Greer, curious situation for him in Carolina. I didn't love that, that fit for them. Not a huge fan of that. Uh, It's not a great system for him. It's a well organized coaching staff, so he's he's in a he's in a good spot in that regard, but interesting, very interesting kind of methodology. I think if anything, it shows the frustration Carolina has with Cam Newton because those two are opposite. Wilger is a absolutely brilliant pocket passing kind of football theory savant, and Cam Newton is a fundamentally not smart passing quarterback from you know, from the pocket. I think he's not a smart guy, but he is. that's not what he has. So you almost have like these two polar opposites. I don't know if that's the drive cam. I don't know if that's to illustrate what the offense looks like under him. I don't love it as a destination for him. It could be tricky for him to maneuver, but I will say this. I expect Will Greer to outlast and outplay Drew Locke in the NFL. Whoa. I think that will be true. I could be wrong. That's my bet. And so to answer that question, those are my thoughts. It doesn't really matter where he goes. What matters is what he does. And the NFL is fantastic at rewarding quarterbacks that are good enough to play. That's just how the system works. If you are good enough, eventually you will get your shot. I expect Will to be one of those guys.
0: All right, let's take a question from Keith Copenhaver, newer listener to the pod, and wants to know what we thought of the firing of Muschamp and hiring McIlwain. Can you compare and contrast that transition with this one? Thoughts on Mullen and McIlwain as play callers in 2008, either in the SEC title alone or the season as a whole? Have they evolved since then? Do you think our offense would have been better if Mack had called plays instead of Nuss? I realize that wouldn't fix bad play design.
1: These are good questions if you haven't listened to our podcast because we can answer them succinctly. And of course, you can always go back and listen to any podcast you want. If you want to go back and listen to previous ones, we talked about all this stuff in real time and you can catch the reactions. But we were very positive on firing Muschamp. We called for it. We called for it relatively early on. Uh, We were not positive on hiring McIlwain. It was a frustrating process for all of us. We talked about the attributes and the positives he did have, but we also talked about the search. It was confusing, didn't make a lot of sense. There were names we didn't go after, names we didn't talk to. So neither Alan nor I were thrilled with that hiring. As far as the play calling goes, uh, Mullen, and I'm going to give credit to Mullen here. When I was, I mean, I have Facebook posts to prove this, Alan. I was on Mullen's stuff in 2008 about calling plays. I felt like he was, you know, train wrecking the team and the play calling was bad. I think it's safe to say now that that was Urban Meyer's influence, and we've learned that through the window of time. So I will say that that's not Mullen's fault, and you shouldn't even address Mullen as a play caller in a way. In fact, Mullen's been the best offensive play caller Florida has ever had statistically uh, in the modern era, including Steve Spurrier back then. But Mullen's fantastic. There's no doubt. McElwain is not a play caller. In fact, if you want to go back and you want to read his time at Alabama, you can read a lot of frustrating accounts of Alabama fans that just were absolutely not in love with what he did. The numbers themselves were fine, but that was mainly a product of superior talent playing against inferior talent. And uh, McElwain, more or less is not, in my opinion, uh, someone who even really understands the X's and O's of football at a high level. That's an incredible thing to say about a coach who's gone where he's gone and done what he's done. But the film suggests that. And so McElwain's a guy that I think rose up through the system through time, got a job at Alabama, cashed in on that check. And the reason he's at Central Michigan and not a more major program is partly because everyone saw what we saw and he's got some character issues. So have any of these guys evolved since then? No, Dan Mullen probably has. I think we've been talking about what we saw in the spring game, Alan, where Dan Mullen opened it up more and had four and five wide and ran some vertical two-on-ones on safeties. A, a more air raid style passing system. It would be awesome if that started to happen. We will see. And lastly, would it have been better if Mack had called plays instead of Nuss? Yes, Doug Nussmeier has got to be the worst offensive coordinator on on the face of the earth that gets employed for the amount of dollars he's been employed at everywhere he has been. McIlwain can't be much better, but you cannot get worse than Doug Nussmeier. (laughs) So therefore, it would have been marginally better.
0: (laughs) I think McIlwain can be successful in a very, very narrow bandwidth. If he has an excellent quarterback or just vastly superior talent, he can. We saw him be successful with Will Greer. I think anything less than that, he's didn't show an ability to adapt or adjust to the personnel he had made a lot of poor decisions about one, who he employed at that position. But two, I think putting those guys in a position to succeed. So it's hard to say Mullen, like you said, 2008 versus now, hopefully if he hasn't gotten better as a play caller in the ensuing decade, that means he's not growing as a person. So that would be disconcerting. So I think he is. I I didn't mention this before in his strengths. I think his play calling situationally is excellent. Around the goal line, we almost always are in a good position to score. Now, the play might not work or might get blown up, but he makes really interesting calls around the goal line. And I think we're really effective. We scored probably more often than we even should have, given our relative talent level. So yes, I, I think that that's something that, I'm sure he's developed over the years and it's still very effective.
1: Chris Perales asks, what are your thoughts, Alan, on the D line, particularly inside or interior portion of the line in 2019 and beyond? This
0: is tough. Uh, I think we're going to be okay in 2019. A lot of guys returning. We only took one defensive tackle in this class. It's very thin moving forward. Very thin. We're, We're relying on transfers some guys that were highly related recruits have not really worked out and talking about Slayton and Conliffe. I'm I'm not like so concerned. I don't think it's a position that is excellent for us. I think we have enough bodies in there to be successful this year. Moving forward, this has got to be a top top priority for the staff. This class has to feature at least two, Excellent defensive line prospects. Um, Now I'm saying I'm talking particularly about defensive tackle and bigger defensive end. I think we've recruited very well at the buck position. So that three, four outside linebacker. Um, We took a bunch of interesting guys in this class. So I'm not worried about that. Um, The bigger end, the D tackle, um, the nose tackle, as we refer to it in our system, Uh, they've got to make hay in that. And if you're behind at that spot, you can get road
1: graded playing against elite athletes in the SEC. If you want to win, Chris, you have got to have an excellent defensive line. That is football 101. Your ability to put pressure on the quarterback in the pass and your ability to stop the run starts with your defensive line. Your ability to stop the run almost exclusively starts and ends with your interior tackles, period. That's it. You don't have them. You're playing with one arm tied behind your back because now you've got to bring a safety into the box. So incredibly important. It is not good that we whiffed on this most recent cycle. This has got to be, as Alan said, a primary primary target area for our staff going forward.
0: Okay. There's another question from Jacqueline Addy. Hey guys, I would like you to riff about power law and long tail distribution. Hope you know about this, James and how that applies to college football today. I see Bama Clemson as the head, Ohio State, UGA, Oklahoma as the neck, and everyone else on the tail, UF being somewhere in the midsection. How did college football get to this place? Can it be changed by creating some new rules? Is it good long-term for the sport? Does anybody else recognize this is a problem?
1: So everyone listening to this podcast right now is familiar with power law, whether you know it or not. Like, quickly, what's two squared? It's four, right? That's a power law. Exponents or power laws, right? But more importantly, to how we're applying it here, power law has to do with the fact that very few people are controlling all the resources, which, of course, everyone's familiar with that too now because the political narrative in our country is, you know, the 99% versus the 1%, right? That's a power law. So you have way more, um, you know, people that are making 100,000 than you do billionaires. So it's this: the resources are being controlled by a small, a small portion. Those resources, as Jack is suggesting, are being controlled primarily by Bam and Clemson followed very closely by Ohio State, UGA, and Oklahoma, and then everywhere else is sort of somewhere along this spectrum, right? And so the better that Bama and Clemson and UGA and Ohio State and Oklahoma do, the worse everyone else does. That's what the power law is really saying. There's this inverse relationship there. And I think that's the core of your question is essentially, uh, is that good for the sport, that kind of relationship? And let's, let's talk about this here, starting with how college football got into this place. The reality is... Any competitive environment lives and breathes by the power law. And a more simpler version of this is the 80 20 rule, right? So 20% of the people or potential inputs are going to be doing 80% of the work. They're responsible for 80% of the skill set. This is true in life, period. It's a human nature competitive law. Uh, this is why if you have a couple of companies racing for a new technology, only a couple of them are going to win, right? That's why in the cell phone world, you have how many cell phone manufacturers nowadays? I don't know, 15, 20, right? You have two major ones, Apple and Samsung. Well, how did that happen? Did no one try? I know they all tried. Go back over 10 or 15 years and look at how many phone manufacturers have come and gone. So power law is a natural result of competition. Therefore, college football, which does not have a salary cap, right? Does not have something protecting or preventing power law from working, is going to operate like any other competitive market really should, which is where the most efficient and best use of the resource programs are going to beat everyone else. Now, this then raises the penultimate question, which is, are people cheating to get there? And if they are, how would you stop that? So we're going to leave that question alone, because we can't prove that. If they're cheating, you've got a serious problem, Jack, and that needs to be stopped at all costs. If they're not cheating, in my opinion, you have no problem. They've created a model with which they are better at the same game than everyone else is. And the last thing you would want to do is take away from them somehow to make everyone else better, because that makes the whole sport worse, right? That ruins progression, that ruins innovation, that ruins the whole point of competition. So I take a hard line on that. I think you have to be careful to make sure things are fair, make sure the rules are enforceable. Uh, But in general, I do not actually think that Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, UGA, Oklahoma, et cetera. Uh, is hurting the sport. I think that's the end result of any competitive sport. You can see this in college basketball. You can see this in professional sports. Why is Bill Belichick crushing everyone in the salary cap area? Is he cheating? No. Is he paying people more? No. He's better. He should be better. He deserves the rewards, right? If you want to cry about it, just recognize he's better. That's how it goes. So I don't have a problem with this. I think that people would be wise to study human nature, the issue of economics, how this works and understand that in any system that rewards someone who is better than someone else, when it comes to resource management, this will happen.
0: I mean, college football has always been stratified. You won't see a, a, a lot of movement, this, although it can happen, but generally there are a few dominant programs at a time and everyone else is chasing them and it's moved up and down now. But historic, if you look, it's been some of the same people, they might rise and fall, But not everybody has a chance to move into this upper echelon. I don't think you're going to see Appalachian State be winning a national title like in the next couple of years or even in the next 30 years. It could happen, but the sport would have to change drastically. So if you have the relative resources and you're in a Power 5 conference, you can win a national title. If you're not, you won't. Sorry. Um, But there's always going to be... People who are, I don't know, leading the pack. This is an NFL where they do everything possible to create parity. And now you win in the NFL because you're marginally better at a lot of small things. And you don't game the system, but you figure out how to maximize. And what the Patriots are doing is stupid. It's crazy. Like, they're, again, off the charts. But it's hard to do it for a long time because the resources are so finite. Um, so college football will always be stratified. If you don't like it, it's just the way it is. Um, and so there's some good and bad about that, but I would agree with almost all of what James says. Okay. Another question from TJ Nowick starting today, basically the score is zero zero who wins more national titles between now and when Saban retires Saban or Dabo
1: TJ, this is going to win question of the podcast for me. This is a great question. I think that, the problem with the question lies with how much longer Dabo is going to coach. So I'm going to modify this to make this even more intense. Let's say the next six years. Cause I think Saban wants to coach at least four to five more. Let's go six years, Alan. So we're not going to give Dabo the default of coaching 30 more, right? Who wins more? This is, this is a phenomenal question. And and I'm going to, I'm going to say Dabo, which I think is for one main reason. If Dabo is able to maintain his assistant coaching staff that he has, and Saban has to continue to churn his out every single year, that is going to greatly affect what Nick Saban can do. But maybe most importantly, this season will dictate the winner of this in my mind, because Clemson with T.J. Lawrence, they should be or Trevor Lawrence. They should win. They should win there. They should win, in my opinion. I mean, I think Tua is not as good. I've said this before. I think that Trevor Lawrence is a like in a once up he's a Peyton Manning mm-hmm. right. I think because of that, if Dabo gets that win and we're going six years, guess who comes back again? Trevor Lawrence for another year. And Tua's gone. It's very possible Clemson goes back to back to back. Wow. These, the recruiting classes are the best they've been. Clemson is elevating its game to the highest level. They have a phenomenal culture. And oh, guess what? Somehow, miraculously, Clemson's staff is more or less still intact from last year. So because of that, I think you're saying if Dabo wins next year, he probably wins the year after that. I don't know. I'll say he catches him in that amount of time. He might, maybe he won't, but I'm going to go Dabo.
0: I think I'll have to go Dabo too. I I think essentially Saban's average a national title like every other year, which is ludicrous. So I don't think he's going to keep up that pace. I would say I would put the over under on him at like one and a half. And I would probably be tempted to take the under and Dabo. I would put the under at maybe two and I'd be tempted to take the over. They're ascending. I don't think that Alabama is ascending. Now they're still up in the stratosphere that having much higher to go again. I mean, how much longer can Nick Saban coach? I would have thought he wouldn't have coached this long. He's a dang robot. So all bets are off with that. So this could be six years. This could be 10 years. Who knows?
1: And let's make one more point here. That's maybe the most important point. Who is Nick Saban playing every single year? you, Jimbo Fishers, Texas A&M, which is just juggernaut building right now. The winner of the SEC East, which could be Georgia every year, but if it's us, we're still getting a very competent program. Who the heck is Clemson playing, Allen? Yeah, the ACC is falling apart around them as we speak. Nobody. They're playing nobody. They're almost a default entry into the playoff every single year. So I think for that reason alone, you would lean Dabo. Yes, that's a great point.
0: Okay, Jeffrey Hoy, one more question here from him. What are your thoughts on Dan Mullen's trolling of UGA and Kirby's responses? Does this make us look bad, or do you like the
1: Spurrier-esque swagger? This is great. This is everything that college football should be because these are two guys that are that are guys that respect each other and like each other and know each other, having fun with each other's programs. This would just be like you and your buddies going out, or you and a rival who you respect, talking trash about how you're going to beat them or how they're going to beat you. It's fun. It's healthy. Florida and Georgia should have these kind of things going on. I absolutely love this. I think college football, when the coaches are just bland and blah, is just not nearly as fun. It's also not good when coaches are seriously acting like 12 year olds taking shots, but this is not that case. This is good natured, fun stuff between the programs. And I love it. I hope to see it continue. I think it's absolutely great.
0: I like it too. I mean, it does position us a little bit as punching up that, Georgia is a step ahead of us and we're kind of acknowledging that by the way we're um pointing at them but it's also embracing reality they've been the superior program the last few years and we've got to catch them both in recruiting and with on-field accomplishments so i i think they are our rival we're not little brother you know who never it's not us in Kentucky although they did beat this last year, where we're going to win 30 in a row. No one's ever going to do that again, I don't think, as long as these coaches are in place. I like it. I like some personality and color in college football. I don't have a problem with it at all. I would like to get to the point, though, where we're talking about more recent accomplishments when it comes to our trash talk.
1: Yeah, you never want to be the program that's, that's talking about your glory days. Alabama did this for a very long time. Until Nick Saban got back there. And I used to really enjoy how much they relied on things that happened like 40 years ago. Let's not become that here at Florida. All right. Philip Bowerman asks, why do we have such a weak home schedule this year?
0: I don't know, Philip, why you're asking this. uh, Because last year's schedule was maybe the weakest of all time. This is a year where we have Tennessee and Florida State at home. Traditionally, this has been the good year. And we also have Auburn at home. And we're playing Miami in Orlando. You can certainly make your way down there for that. That's an easy trip. So I'd say it's a fairly robust home schedule. So, yeah, look on uh, the other side of the mirror here, Phil. The glass is half full. Be a little more positive.
1: Yeah, I think this gets the most surprising question of the pod. Uh, I looked at it and thought, hmm, it's interesting. You've got a Tennessee team that seems to be ascending a little bit. You have a Florida State team, it's a disaster. But maybe, that's, maybe get to trounce them. But do you not want to watch us crush Florida State at home? Uh, yes, I do. I, I definitely do. And then Auburn comes in, who should be pretty darn good this year. At least interesting. Auburn yeah. is always interesting. They tend to beat us almost always in football. It would be nice to beat them at home. I, I'm not sure either what you're thinking with regards to a terrible week home schedule. Uh, we did, of course, lose LSU, which we would have had at home this year, correct? But then we flipped it around because we played them twice in a row. I think that's true, right? No, I think we already, flip-flop we, we already, flip we already resolved
0: them. that situation. I think we're back on track now.
1: LSU is the opposite of yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, right. So anyway, so you could have had that. So yeah, you get it. You get, this is always the good home year as Alan said. Um, so, and you get Miami as a bonus point. So Philip, we're not hating on your question. We're just questioning your question. All right, LD Johnson doesn't even have a question. In fact, he has a statement. He said he really wants